Hey, Vince, how's it going? Nice to see you. Harry, nice to reconnect. Yeah. So, um, we, we haven't connected in a while, maybe a year or so. Has it been a year? Maybe, maybe nine months, something like that. Uh, yeah, maybe nine months. We're coming around to a year because we worked together last summer. No? Yes. In the in last August, summer. In August, right around August. Yeah. So catch me up a little bit about, um, how things have been going. Well, it's, you know, like I said, you know, uh, my father passed away and there was a readjustment there, you know, and everything sort of refocused itself around the art and in my career and my teaching. Um, and typical of me, you know, like I'm always in things for the long haul to like build very solidly, slowly and incrementally, you know, try a few things, check them out. But I, I really prefer the, the kind of the, the turtle, you know, the here in the tortoise thing. I'm the tortoise, you know, just chugging along. And Slow and steady. Slow and steady. When there's an opportunity, a window of an opportunity where you can burst through, I'm not a birth to that, right? But, you know, I'm not, I'm not the person who, just for straws, things have to really be said. So we've been building on that. I've been putting into practice a lot of the things we did in the workshop and stuff like that. And it's been really interesting from a psychological point of view, uh, from a relationship with your audience point of view. Um, you know, especially, you know, you've heard me say this before, but this idea of Looking at things completely from the experience of the the consumer or the collector, right? Rather than looking at it from the art your art experience, you know, kind of narrative it was a big shift. For me. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that you have to always look at it from that angle, but adding that as a tool to your tool belt, of being able to do that is a mindset shift. You know, because, you know, the challenge for the artist is you're so immersed, like, think about it, you know, like a scientist, you know, trying to find a solution for cancer, right? You know, this is the kind of focus, you know, a serious artist can bring in, uh, to their practice. And it's so much about that, that often we, we fall victim to the fact that, oh, we think all we need to do is just tell that story and everything's going to be okay, right? And that's not all there is, right? Especially in real time, in the living time, while we're alive, while we're interacting. Because there's so many choices, so many possibilities. There are conclusive answers about, you know, what is the best, what is the worst, and none of that. Anything like we break it right down, none of that really exists. So, so how do you make these connections, you know? And part of it is understanding those needs, right? And problems mm -hmm. that that consumer or collector or that person searching for some um, is trying to get resolved. That's very new and, and very outside of the artist's minds. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because... You know, making art is very complex. It's like, uh, you know, training to be a surgeon, 
you know, uh, these are very complex things. So by the nature of the discipline and the way that the West has taught the discipline, you know, throughout the Renaissance and the universities, it's very focused on your practice. So it's all consumed. You know, this idea of forgetting yourself and now being completely responsive to a human being that you've never met before, for example, um, and know nothing about, and now need to proceed to find out, you know, think about that. That's a serious 180 in terms of your concentration, your focus, you know, uh, your problem solving. So by the very nature of what we do, we're very social artists. It's serious artists. I mean, you know, because you artists practice, you know, they do a little gimmicky thing, you know, and they know that there's a need out there, you know, because people love pets or, you know, people love to have some sort of symbolic association to something based on reading or marketing. You know, and, and there are people who cater to that. Artists, white scientists are literally trying to probe deep, complex questions, paradoxes, someone down in the universe, right? It's all concerning. I think that plays a big part, you know, and the educational system has reinforced that. Mm -hmm. You know, look at the way that the art world thinks, you know, the way artists should be getting. Do you know that in the formal art world, what you are doing, for example, is considered sacrilegious? Because <laughs> an artist should never be advocating for themselves and should not all be concerned with trying to sell themselves to the work ever, right? Because they should be completely dedicated and immersed in the pursuit of discovery and manufacture that transcends, brings innovation um, and originality to it. And, and conveniently, right? The art institutions and the art dealers of youth is a way guilting and entrapping artists anytime they say, hey, wait a second, why are you getting 60%? I'm getting 40% and I'm the one taking all the risks. You know what I mean? So it's been reinforced by everything around us. It's interesting. I think, um, I think a lot of professions, I mean, the way society is developed inculcates, at least initially, that sort of uh, self-absorption that you mentioned beyond art. I mean, if you think about like the law profession, for example, sure, you go and learn the technical craft of being a lawyer, what laws mean, how to adjudicate stuff. You right. go to a law firm, but the thing is in a, in a law firm, as you have more success, the highest levels of being a lawyer is being in sales, right? The partners in a law firm at some point have to learn how to bring in new business and grow existing business and maintain that. And I think you see that play out in a lot of different fields, but for some reason, yeah, it's like that, that evolution is not uh, baked in, I think, into the historical traditional art world for some reason. Athletes will do the same. You know, think about fighters, professional fighters. Like, don't worry about the business things. You focus on the training, you focus on the opponent, you focus on, on what you're doing, right? And to some degree, that, that is 
a trait in terms of you want to be successful. Like you've got to be prepared. Good at what you do. Yeah. You've got to be good at what you do, right? But the upside of being able to connect with people, being able to provide people uh, a viable service or experience through, through what you do um, is the other part of the equation if you want to empower yourself, right? And, and really navigate your own shit. Yeah, I think that's it. It's, um, I've heard another way I've heard to describe it's like you need to have basically stack or layer different talents together. And yeah, most of the traditional education system really trains you to be a specialist in one talent area. And so you have to really kind of take it upon yourself to like add something else. So if you add art and communication or art and psychology or software programming and sales, like all of a sudden you are, the, the sum of the parts are more than the parts themselves. You know, it's like one plus one equals three. Um, and I'm excited that, yeah, I feel like I'm playing a small part in helping bring that, raise consciousness in the art world around that. And yeah, um, sure. yeah it's- um, That's a given. And it's, and it's, it's kind of like almost like you, you li you're lifting a veil off. You're like, wait a minute. Yeah, the, there's no reason why I can't learn that stuff. It's just not something that I've thought about yet. You know, there's, no, there's no physical constraint preventing artists from learning these skills. Um, so- And historically, you know, the interesting thing is historically, yeah. this phenomenon that you're talking about is, is primarily a 20th century. You know, like what, it's like, what was it, in the 18th century or something like that, late 18th century, 90% of the people were still on farms, right? The multidisciplinary type thing. And then when, when the Industrial Revolution came in, um, then it was like something like 18%, you know, of the people on, on, in, in the developed worlds were on the farms and they were moving in. You know, these specialty jobs were starting to emerge. And yep. in that middle part of the 20th century, I'm a transitional artist because I came from the end of the analog period and the beginning of the digital revolution. So I was there at the okay. Yep. And pre the digital era, you could have a 20 to 30 year career working for a company, just being a designer setting type. Headlines, copy, you know, and that's it, you know. And it created outstanding quality photography. And but you sure. would be paid pretty well. You'd probably have a pension and absolutely. Yeah. But with, with the, the technological revolution and the fact that, you know, all of a sudden time city could be done now in on a desktop computer, ready to go by the individual, right? All of a sudden we moved from a highly specialized market to now kind of diversified skill. An individual had to have because you're wearing more hats. One, right? You know, like, and you see it now, for example, in the storyboards. Well, before we go to storyboard, it's funny. I mean, like, somebody who's a, you know, I'm a little bit younger. Like, I don't, I can empathize with that transition you just said there, but it, it doesn't like the the ability to use Word and type in a document doesn't even register to me as like a skill. Like, it's just so assumed you know at my generational level which just shows you how much it diffused into assumed skill yes yeah. <laughs> the average kid like my kid for example t and it's just assumed right 
in their academic classroom that they can shoot video, edit the video, write the script, script, right? Develop the content, do the illustrations, the illustrations are part of it, or do the talk. And then puts it up. <laughs> yeah. And they do it like as if it's like in my time, sitting down and writing an essay for it. They just. Yeah. 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 Or just going for a walk. It's just, you it's just. a major shift. Yeah. It's, I, I had never really thought about that until you just said that, but you're, you're so right. I mean, I know people in my, my, my father was a lawyer and he has lawyer friends who, yeah, they would have, you know, people that would type everything up for them. They wouldn't even type themselves when they first got into exactly. the practice. <laughs> or orally dictate. Yep. And people would take it down for them. <laughs> My generation has a lot of problems because we see the degradation of qualities. Going back to just setting type, you know what I mean? Putting things like that to them. Like what yeah. we see is so atrocious from the point of view Good, solid. I'm talking about functional design, right? I'm not talking about being you know, unique or creative. I'm talking about functional, like how to optimize the line spacing, curtain, and stuff like that. And we see all kinds of things just falling off. It's terrible, right? <laughs> but at the same time, we live in an age where getting message out more frequently seems to be more important getting it out less frequently, better result. In a, po in, a, in a more polished package. In a more polished package. Now, here's an interesting thing we just said. See, polished. See how people, you know, in, in the advertising world, people would talk about, it. yeah, you go to the art director and the artist to make things pretty. And that's completely wrong. Completely wrong. Because what people have not developed acumen for is that whether you take the elements of the sun, they all are elements of engineering and they play a role in function. So prettiness or polish is not what's happening when proper top setting has happened. The ease and clarity of communication is optimized. That neatness or polish is actually greater and clarity with message over all the art forms, written word, the image, layout, the composition, the scale, right? It, it's all part of optimizing the engineering of communication. I agree with that. Yeah. No, I would agree. Yeah, for sure. Um, but it's, um, it, it is interesting because I feel like I work with a, a, a number of folks from your generation and just seeing things where um, you realize I, I, have, I have a greater appreciation for it's almost like we speak different languages sometimes because when I think of something as being not very techy, like you just said, how your son is assumed to, to know how to like record a video on their phone and edit and stuff like that. Yeah, like that. I know it's a little techie, but it doesn't register as super techie to me, right? As somebody also who knows how to code and build websites and things like that, like, um, but it's all relative. It depends on where you're coming from, your context, things like that. Yeah. Um, so speaking of that, like, you know, I don't feel like I know much about your background. Do you mind? Like, tell me a bit about like, 
Like where, where did you grow up? Were you, did you grow up in Canada originally? Yeah. So I'm the son of Italian immigrants who came in second wave. Okay. So my parents came here pennies in 54. What part of Italy did they come from? So war torn, you know, it's very similar to, you know, refugees from Syria and so on and so forth. Right. Because you know, the allies landed in Sicily. You know, the Germans occupied Italy and Sicily, you know, so it was a pretty big place. The Southerners in Italy, of course, historically feel they got the short end of the stick when, when Italy nationalized. So there was a lot of, there was genocide, there was discrimination uh, during the Garibaldi years when they were bringing this under the national umbrella of Italy. So what, what um, century was this? That was a 19th century. Okay, 1800s. Yeah, 1860, something like that. 1867, I think when Italy officially became a nation. Because I, 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 I was into the Borgias for a little while, and I knew I was watching that period of history where they had the different um, little princes and city-states, and they were all fighting between each other. And that, do you think that led up, that, that's persisted through to the 1800s, more or less? Yeah, it's very much so. Wow. Right, okay. because Italy, well, you got to remember that, you know, Italy, having been the Roman Empire, right? You know, it's like, felt their ways were doing things was like pretty, pretty good. They were very successful. You see what I mean? They had their day in the sun. <laughs> they had their day in the sun. So, but a lot of their enemies, who they had subjugated, right? And they were trying to come and over, you know, out from, you know, that, that repression, right, you know, started to reorganize themselves uh, tribally in manners, you know, afforded them greater, greater power, greater influence, right? And you see this in the development of France, you see this in the development of Britain, you know, and Germany, right? You know, all of which shit kicking from the Italian Roman Empire. Uh, so they nationalized way before, right? And, and, but Italy was very much stuck, right, in, in the antiquity, right? And cities dominated right up until the middle 19th century. Hmm. Sicily, from Naples south, it was known as the Kingdom of Two Sicilies. And that part of the world was last remnants of, you know, the um, Roman Empire, you know, the Eastern Roman Empire influence right and he's very tied into that so it's a hard change for them you know so it's not surprising with the industrial developments technological developments protestantism why did they choose canada was it was it did they have a choice that they think about coming to the u.s sure absolutely the option was either uh, the u.s and big chunks of my family ended up in new york state in connecticut you know philadelphia Right, um, Landing City, uh, and then others, you know, sort of, you know, ended up here in Canada. Right, I think Canada was maybe a little bit more like social, uh, more socialistically friendly, and that was sort of less of a risk for uh, for certain immigrants. And I think, only my father being that kind of person, you know, like a very kind of 
introverted, you know, just hardworking, honest, you know, I think may have had something to do with this choice. So it, was it a, like an attraction that was a, a contrast to kind of fascism at the time, or was it that he thought it just was going to be more of a safety net if they needed a safety net? And that was appealing. It was because it was more of a safety net. I think the, the entrepreneurial nature, uh, the, the freedom of the U.S. was a bit intimate. Right? You know, Canada being more restrained and having more social services. Right? You know, there was more of a communal kind of... And if you're not that any you know, take a chance to step out there, you know, to put yourself out in the world, which, you know, my father was not that kind of person. He wanted a job. You know, something that wasn't firing. You know? And then he'll you know, work his ass off, you know? But don't bother him anymore beyond that. Beyond that. So, so they, they came. What sort of work did he get into? Well, originally, uh, the first job we had when he got here at the age of 16 was in Bull Ramos. Can you imagine? He, to, he would put up the bowling pins at the back? Yeah. Wow. They should get something like 10 cents of pin or you know, a nickel of pin, you know, like, you know, and he'd be doing this all day. And then he ended up working at women's, um, women's bakery, uh, you know, uh, donuts, bread, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then shortly after that, he ended up getting a job. I'd send the rest mattresses. And ended up there for like 35 years of his career, you know, basically working piecework, you know, making his money per unit, right? So you have to be very skilled and very competent, you know. He would, would make the mattresses? Yes. Wow. He'd be, he'd be part of the assembly line, right? He'd be uh, wiring the springs together to set up the base and eventually got stuffed with the material and the cushion and then wrapped, you know. And my mother ended up working there with him in the seamstress area. Making the coverings. I know all this because I had part-time jobs there in the summer. <laughs> what were you doing? <laughs> well, whatever. You know, like helping somebody on the assembly line, you know, like either making sure they had supplies of material, you know, or doing big little... Uh, Filling in here and there. Yeah, whatever they needed me to do, cleaning up, you know, this and that, you know. But apparently I wasn't a very good employee. Uh, they preferred my brother. <laughs> he was much more industrious. I was way too personable and, and interested in the stories of the people on the floor, which was fascinating. There was a bunch of Portuguese in the floor. Harry, me, they were like animals came to work, right? But they would sing all this. <laughs> they would sing humans, three part harmony, because there were three of them working this assembly station, right? Where they were doing it. And it was just insane, right? Like people from Portugal, from Spain, from, from Italy, from, you know, South America, like the stories, that, you know, I was always fascinated by, you know, very much a people person, you know, so I spent a lot of time chatting, right? Where do you feel like that came from? Because I feel like I've gotten a, a taste of that. You're such a good conversationalist. It sounds like you had that at a very young age. Was that from your family or something you just were born with? Like, where, where do you think that comes from? I think it was part, part of my personality. I'm a thinker, you know, rather than an action person, you know. Um, and, you know, I 
was an only child for some years. So I spent a lot of time amongst adults. And my interaction in my family social situation was speak, you know. And that coupled with the fact that I would think about what I was saying, you know, garnished me attention as an intellectual, a thinker, a talker, well, speak publicly, look at, look at the way he speaks with people 20, 30 years of age, you know, that kind of thing. And it developed, right? So you got, so it sounds like the adults in your life were receptive to having conversations with you and gave you praise and encouragement at a young Very age much. for having conversations with them and things like Very that. Much. I had a, I had an uncle, for example, who was an academic and he, he did seminario in Palermo. Um, he was very well read. He started introducing me into, into books, you know, like the rise and the fall of the third Reich. you know, like a hundred. I read that book in, uh, over the pandemic, incredible book, <laughs> it's an incredible, book. <laughs> incredible book, like the way it breaks things down. Right. And so, and it's from the perspective of this journalist who is like there in the trenches and I guess you start, I mean, I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, of course there would be, you know, wartime correspondence from the West in Germany, but you just, I don't know. I just hadn't thought about that being a thing. And it was so fascinating. That's the best stuff. Like I read a book called the sweet science, which was all about Watsi written by a New York uh, newspaper journalist who was there interviewing fighters and so on. Right. Watching the bites kind of perspective, you know, you get that a lot in Roman um, diaries and documents as well, because that's part of the Roman practice, you know, like, you know, if you're going to go suffer, for example, you know, the best thing for a Roman is to suffer in a stadium with a hundred thousand people watching so that they can bear witness, right? To what, you know, the Romans thought about that, right? Your actions to make everything worthwhile had to be also documented, recorded, almost like a standard PhD. Mm -hmm. For it to have value, right, to the next generations. So that kind of uh, that kind of writing, that kind of information, I love that because it's so right in the moment, so grounded, right in what's. I love that. I love that. So, um. It's, um, it makes sense given the, you know, where your art practice is and, and you can tell people a bit about what you do, but it's, um, yeah, I, I've, I've gotten really into a sort of a biography kick recently. And I just think it's such an interesting angle on history. Uh, I feel like at least in my growing up, when I had studied history in school, it was always so much about these big societal forces and, you know, you know, different groups are being lifted up and others are coming down but it was all like these big impersonal forces but then you read biographies and it's like this one person had a huge impact in this period of time and it's a totally different um uh perspective that i i don't know if it's necessarily more truthful i just think it's more helpful and more inspiring and um it fires you up in my opinion to read those sort of lives of people well, think of it this way. You know, you, you understand this thing because you come from it. Um, you know, the, the universe is a complex place. And in all likelihood, probably unknown by us, you know, truth sense. I mean, we can work real hard at being objective about it. 
but you know, just the conscious alone being subjective and how we have to deal with the problem limits us, you know, from seeing even our tools. So meet things from macro and micro perspectives, right? I see this conversation a lot among scientists and materialist scientists and and people who are arguing against them. You know, you take the data, right? And the data is a macro view. You know, simple notion of averages. You know, you can have a pile of rocks. You know, the average rock diameter is five centimeters, right? After you've done all the calculations. But go into the pile of rocks and there is not a rock that is actually five centimeters. Mm. Right? So that's it. Not the whole truth. Broad stroke gives you a real good orientation of a general soul. But the other part of the equation is direct subjective experience, right? Which might not be an indication of the general pattern or the overall, but is a very important thing to consider as well when you're trying to understand things. Right. And that might be some of the fascination, you know, like, because you've come from that, those big, broad strokes. I've heard you talk about statistics in those broad strokes. But artists, like writers, come from experiential knowledge, right? Which is very subjective. It's coming from the singular. Okay. And I don't think it's an either or. I think a good, healthy person, whether they're a scientist, an artist, an engineer, a lawyer, Considers them both. Yeah. I think the anecdotal subjective experience uh, is what inspires and moves us to make changes in our lives. And then it's the um, building out a clear mental model that works in a generalized way. It's based on first principles is how we then cement that desire for change into the actual change we're looking for, the actual progress and development. But it's, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I hope I hope that we're as a culture moving back to a focus on celebrating in great individuals and what they've done and how they've impacted society possibly because I feel like um if you just get exposed to those general trends of history you feel like you are subject to these big forces that are outside your control these fates or whatever it might be and um uh, I think it reduces our sense of agency, which I don't think is is that helpful. What do you what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's true, and I think it's also dangerously misleading because then you start to presuppose things as being truth when in fact they're just uh, theories or an idea. This this is I think part of the problem that's happening with the woke movement, right? Where we've fallen into tribal ideologies, right? You know, thinking, well, this would be better if we could all be, you know, this, that, the other, um, completely negating that sort of subjective experience and the whole thing. You know what I mean? If it doesn't fit the theory, that's problematic. See, so you got to right. balance both of those things, you know? And right now, I think academia, we've kind of fallen back because things have got to, to these ideological positions, right? And trying to feel like I did a survey at my college, right? They, you know, because they're diversity, you know, and, and the questions were all about, you know, trying to understand. And one of the questions, right, which I found completely offensive, inappropriate, and actually racially charged, like prejudicially 
racial charts was like, how do you identify yourself? You know, like a black person and an Asian person, you know, a white person. And then when I read the white person in the classifications, it's a white person includes Portuguese, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, that's when my pen went down and I refused to answer. I was so, first of all, angry and offended, you know, that I am not a white person. I'm a Mediterranean man. I live busting a hundred yards of press from Africa and Sicily. You know what I mean? I've got black in me. I've got Arab in me. You know what I mean? And sure. now some academic socialist theorist in a Canadian university, you know, has decided that under the moniker of white, you know, uh, Italians and Portuguese and Spanish people fall under that moniker. No, 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 no. <laughs> you have it all wrong. <laughs> so think you, you know what I mean? No, 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 no. Yeah. Big, big there's a really interesting, uh, there's an interesting um, business philosopher that I like. I, I, he wouldn't probably call himself a philosopher, but he's written a lot of essays on uh, uh, business from, from a philosophical perspective. And one of his ideas is like, you want to keep the surface area of your identity small. And it's like the more labels you attach to yourself, Republican, conservative, liberal, progressive, black, white, you know, old, young, artist, not an artist, salesperson, not a salesperson. The more we add all those labels to ourselves, it's a sense of short-term comfort, but it actually is like a box, a cage that we're kind of building in ourselves, you know? And it's next. And that's the big problem that I find right now with the with the uh, dogmas. It is people are so obsessed with dogmas, opposed to being obsessed with perpetual inquiry. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. like have your point of view, but keep yourself perpetual inquiry. Sure, sure. You know, so that you know, just keep broadening. You know, I mean, that one of the things between me and you. Remember when we first started and I said to you, you know, I said, okay, Ari, you know, I'm going to tell you one of my biases, which is pretty intense, you know? I said, anybody who would buy a work of art, you know, over the, the internet, you know, or sort of through a digital interaction, as far as I'm concerned, yeah. <laughs> you know, because only way you can make proper judgment is to see the work in the business, understand its quality, relevance, purposes. Everything else is just not enough. Right? And you pointed out, but that's your belief, right? Someone else might not be motivated by the same legal concept. And they might have a whole And by you a doing A set of evaluation you criteria. Yeah. yeah you sh I've shut myself off from that. Right? That's very important. And the idea of like willing, having the willingness to want to have that discussion and not be offended by, it, you know, like for myself first, and you know, someone coming from the perspective that you're coming from. And wow, that's something I'd have, if I got to take that into consideration, right? 
you know, very important, right? The idea of question, inquiry, and discussion, right? And not getting right? In these labels and these dogmas and these, right? Traps and stages, right? A hundred percent. Well, um, I feel like, so we were talking a bit about how your folks moved here from Italy. Let's, let's go back there. So catch me up on like, were you a good student? Did you study art? Like what was your childhood like related, relating to your art practice? Well, education was difficult, right? Because, you know, I lived in a household, not even proper Italians. And then of course, you still speak it. I do. Yeah. I got it. Not very well. Uh, I do get better at it the more I speak it and the more I'm around my people. You know, like if I go to this and I spend a month there, I'm pretty good at it. It'll come back. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. So reading was very difficult for me. English was difficult. You know, I always put the verbs and the adjectives wrong. Ace, you know, like... I've heard English is very hard to learn. As a second language. Because there's a lot of different ways to say stuff, you know, the same way. Right. But I was a great academic. I was inclined and inclined to an academic discipline. Right. So, you know, I had, you know, successes, you know, and but struggled with certain things, you know, and I had to work at it and all that stuff. Home, my parents, listen, they were up at six in the morning. They were out of the house working in the factory at the age of eight, nine. I was waking myself up, making breakfast, going to school, closing the door, and I was the one responsible. Wow. You know, there were no newspapers. There were no magazines, right? You know, Christmas Day, when I was seven years old, my mother came storming into the bedroom and said, there are no presents this year for Christmas. We have a mortgage. We're going over to your aunt's house. Mind your manners, right? And be quiet and respectful. You know, when you're seeing people get gifts in this, right? You know, so it was very spark. Everything that I got as far as information, stimulus, comic books, I'd find them in a trash, you know, in someone's garbage down the street. And it was like, I had to find like, you know, some biblical piece of papyrus, you know, from 700 years, right? And I'd take it home and my, you know what I mean? And so hunger for all of the cultural experiences it wasn't really being provided in the household because we were strapped, right? And you didn't so, have TV or radio or... We did have TV. We were not first adopters. We were late adopters. You know, like we were always kind of middle to late. My father was that kind as opposed to some of my uncle. He was the TV where out they got it because it was part of the simulation to the culture. So that came very late. We had like three channels. Did you have a library card or books or anything like that? We used to have uh, uh, library mobiles that would come into the neighborhood. Cool. I'd, I've never heard of that. <laughs> to drive up just down at the end of the street and you walk into this 18-wheeler trailer, which was a library, and you could sign out books. But my reading comprehension was, was problematic. Right. So reading was a struggle. You know, I didn't, I didn't do, I got, I got really good at it when I went to college, believe it or not. You know, when I entered in OCAD University, I was reading and writing at the level of a grade eight. 
Really? That's, yes, that's how unpredictable my education was. Because I came from Jane Beach, which was a social experiment uh, on Canadian um, multicultural politics. They built affordable housing for immigrants, right? In this uh, Jane and Shepherd Jane area, which was uh, northwestern GTA, northern GTA, right on the outskirts of the city. And they did it uh, right in the middle of social and welfare housing for disenfranchised Canadians, you know, down on their luck. So you can understand the volatility of those neighborhoods, right? Immigrants moving in, buying affordable housing and working, doing all this stuff. And then you had like disenfranchised Canadians that were down on their luck, broken homes, problematic as our neighbors, right? So it was gang warfare all the time, you know, we're kicking the shit out of each other, right? You know? And this was growing up in the 60s. Being an Italian was like being like a black person. Tremendous amount of racial prejudice against us and hatred, you know? Uh, so this was the environment that I navigated through. Yard uh, thing, I just... So you were doing art at those in those years? Absolutely. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't even know that it had value to it. But in the earliest age, I have a very powerful recollection of being six years old and going to the Toronto National Exhibition, which is basically a big carny circus event that we have in, in Toronto at the Lakeshore. Like big, they have four shows and games and rides and all this kind of stuff. My uncle, who was an early adopter to North American English lifestyle, my father wouldn't go. He took us, he took his kids and he took me, my cousins. And I remember being six years old and watching portrait, caricature portrait artists, you know, entertaining the crowd, right? And I'm enthralled, you know, like the guy's taking these big markers. At first, I black marks but then at one critical moment he puts that lick in and all of a sudden it's the person that was like magic to me like having a superpower it being my mind right so i had this very deep involved fascination that activity right and practiced unbeknownst anything in the social fabric meant, you know, so I did it. And did, did, it. did you show your parents or your peers? Like, did people know they were doing this or did you keep it kind of private? So check this out. So at school, I became legendary for, right? So kids will want to have projects with me because I illustrated everything, right? And really good. Teachers actually created situations special for me so that I could paint a mural or do this or that to see you, right? But I would bring that home, Harry, and this was my experience. <laughs> my mother would look at my drawing and go, oh, that's nice, and show it to my dad and say, is that good? Are we done? And I'd go, yeah. And then she'd crumple it up and throw it in the trash can. Wow. How did that make you feel? Terrible. So I did all of activity from then from my personal why why do you think they had that reaction was it 
Like they didn't want you to get into something that they thought wasn't going to be valuable or maybe make a living or. No, I think two reasons. I don't, I don't think that that even registered on my mother's radar. Mm-hmm. Um, it was literally, my mother was a clean freak. Ah. And all of this was junk, clutter, right? The, the last menagerie that she was creating in the household, the couches with plastic off, you know, the living rooms that you never used, they were your dioramas from where you had come from and what you're becoming, right? It was like a mutine, you know? And then she was a clean freak. My, my, my mother could have worked in, in, for a hospital preparing surgical wounds, right? She got in bodical with their cleaning. So she just threw them away because they were cluttered. Do you all think it, do you think it registered with her, the emotional impact it had on you? No. No. My, my parents with me, they were so busy paying mortgage. Taking care of the bills. Yeah. yeah I think about this, uh, Harry, my mother would wake up with my father at five in the morning. They would head off to Simmons Beauty Rest. My mother was such an incredible that she made more money than father and worked five different family line stations in the company to the highest level of performance in men and women, right? Then she would come home at the end of the day and clean the house, make dinner, make sure that we would eat her three brothers my grandmother, my father, and me. Wow. She had no time for me. And she had no time for my feelings. She was busy keeping everything afloat, you know? Wow. Yeah. And that was just the price I paid for being a first son, you know, in that kind of a situation. That required that kind of focus and determination on the part of my parents. Created a relationship between my mother, which... And I, which was very uh, strange, you know, it was tough. I was more her soldier and servant than I was her son. You know, she was more my queen and my matriarch more than she was my mother. You know, by the nature of our circumstances. Got it. So at school, you were becoming this mini celebrity for it, you know, and then yeah. at home, it was just not a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Well, not even a big deal. It was just, it was trash. Yeah. It's not, it's not even, it's not even a big deal. They literally denigrate. Wow. You know what it's like to look at your beautiful drawing that you did of a cardinal, you know, and in the trash before the plates cleared it. Like, wow, man, that's a lot of conflicting messages there. You know what I mean? That I had to sort out, right? Did you sort it out then or did it take a long time to work through all that? It took a long time in the sense that what ended up happening was, you know, as I discovered my, my artistic school and things were kind of going bad because of the nature, the social nature of the environment, you know, um, I discovered that there was a school called, you know, Imperial College of Art Design University in Toronto, 130-year-old institution dedicated to the arts. I, I didn't even know that school like that existed. Right? How'd you find out about it? 
from my high school program that recognized that I had the potential to go real far in, in the arts. And uh, my teachers and the program heads really got behind me, you know, and, and helping me, you know, create a portfolio and focus my energies. And I've completely dedicated myself to pursuit because there was nothing else. Everything else was, you were going to end up working on a construction site. You know, our teachers, I was in a high school that had 2,500 students. Our teachers thought we were all us. There was a tremendous cultural gap between the Anglos and the Italians and the Jamaican black, you know, and I mean like day and night, Catholicism, Protestantism, like just day and night, right? So, and they were afraid of us because we were also emotional and passionate and Give us the Malueku, and the next thing you know, we were in your face real bad, right? You know, and they, that's what it was like growing up in that environment. Things were going, you know, nowhere real quick. Right? Was there one teacher or somebody in particular that looked out for you? And yeah, tell me about that. I just an incredible woman who eventually became a pioneer in uh, arts-oriented high school. Her name was Hess. You know, um, and uh, her and with uh, Kathy Oliver, who was the head of the department at the time, uh, they had created special, very postmodern program, right? Which was really progressive for, for a high school. It was outstanding. There were about uh, four kids from that program in my year went to Imperial College of Art uh, and Design uh, here in Toronto, right? Like it was just that, and it just brought the best out of us, you know, our distant. Did you get any scholarship or anything like that to help you? No, uh, no, I didn't. Um, my parents, hardworking, they just came up with this. You know, they weren't happy about me going to art school, but they, you know, I was the first one to go to college. I've been the only one in the family to graduate from the college universe. Um, and they just put up the money. No, but back wow. then, the tuition there. You, this is going to blow your mind. It was 2000 bucks A year or in total? Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know what I mean? 2000, well, in, in 1979, 78, still was a good chunk of money relative to the purchasing power it had. But compared to like what's happening today. It's terrible. It's really, it's, it's, yeah, I don't like to think about it too much because it's just so, uh, broken, but I mean, some of the schools now, like the top schools, are like eighty thousand a year. It's outrageous. Yeah, so it was more realistic for somebody of a working class background. It was, I'm sure, it was very hard for them, but they were able to scrape that together and put you through that. Did you? Sorry. Did you live at home during those years and travel, or did you have your own place? Only, some only, only for the first year. First year, and then in the second year, I moved out because literally uh, we were living up at Woodbridge, which wins the northern part of the GTA, outside of the GTA. The Ontario College of Art and Design was literally, you know, uh, university Dundas. You know, Got it. Way down in the heart of the, the downtown. City. Yeah. So it was just killing me, you know, like driving to a train station, you know, like so I'm driving 40 minutes. 45 minute train, you know, and this is your daily commute. And then remember my, my mother's situation, right? Working in the base, you know, the moment I start working on something, well, right after my mother would be like collecting it all and throwing it in the trash. And you need to turn it in. 
right? So couldn't even get into a settled working environment, right? I see. Yeah. It was so disruptive. You know, if I, if I dropped a bit of paint or something or which it out, right? So it was just completely, I couldn't do my work, right? Couldn't dig so to speak. What, what was OCAD like? Did, did you like it? So OCAD in the seventies was a really interesting place. It was this, it, it is the Seminole Art Institution, right? It, it's, a big, it's a big, especially for practicing artists. What was really cool was you were being taught by the leading professionals. The downside to that was they really weren't teachers. So a lot of them, you know, as incredible as they were, disseminating in a formal manner their experience or their knowledge in a qualitative way. They weren't, they like, that's the thing with experts is a lot of people have unconscious mastery, but they don't have the pedagogy. And they forget how to explain something to a beginner. And then they have a lot of, they don't have a lot of empathy sometimes. None at all. <laughs> None at all. So, so what you found was there was this hierarchy, right? With the, with the props, right? And they had their pets. And usually their pets were disciples of them, right? Almost like the Renaissance. Yeah. You know, like the school of Da Vinci, the school of Raphael. And this, you know what I mean? And they were disciples. And so if you were bucking them or fighting them, or, or or weren't tapped by one of them or something like that. Or weren't tapped by one of them. It was it was a challenge, right? But being a kid that came out of a very experienced kind of orient, street oriented, people oriented kind of thing, I navigated, you know, and I dealt with it. You know, I dealt with my shortcut. Check this out. I had a <laughs> teacher who was a PhD in psychiatry, and he had this incredible force which was called psychiatry and of art, right? And took us deep into the art of the insane. And it's fascinating. This is art, people who make art that are not aware that they're making art. We're not talking about self-conscious professional people that are trying to serve and entertain. We're talking about people who are psychologically driven by the need, right? To translate whatever into visual images. What? Man, I was like, believe on this. But I was like 20 years old. I, I, I didn't even know what putting an essay was, you know what I mean, in a formal way. I was reading and writing at a grade eight, grade nine level, right? And I've got people in my class who've got university degrees, you know, have, have got their, their, their masters and now they're coming back to OCAD. They're 30, they're 35, they've traveled the world, you know. I handed in my first paper. And this guy was a pompous. You know, the way most the, the professors were unfiltered back then. So much power, right? Not like it is today. Yeah, they had tenure and autonomy and all that. Oh, yeah. And they were the shit, right? So I wrote this paper, which was ferocious. Yeah. And I thought this <laughs> back, you know, give me like a, D minus or something like this. Like it was really bad, you know? And then he said, you know, only a moron could have written this. You know what I mean? 
See, that's what he said. Yeah. So after the class, I waited for him. Everybody left. You know, I made sure everybody was. And I, I, I walked up to him and said, hey, I want to talk to you about my sleep. And he looked at me and goes, yeah, I went about it. You know, piece of crap. And I said, that's all cool. I said, you know, just want to give you some perspective. Say, when he years old, I know that you frowned on inexperienced people being in the class. You only wanted highly educated because this was a serious respect. I'm really interested in this class. Finding what you are talking and lecturing about. Absolutely engaging. I want to be part of it. And I said, no, I have no problem with you failing me or grading me, you know, uh, in a manner that you feel perfect. I said, but if you ever call me a moron again, I said, we're going to see you and you're not going to like what's going to happen. And I just, that guy turned white, man. And, he, and you know what? He checked himself. Because, hey, come on. You know? Yep. Like, put it yeah. together. You know? That is like, not, really, it's okay to, more. yeah, exactly. It's okay to get constructive, critical feedback. But a moron is saying, like, you cannot change. Like, this is who you are. And it's not good. It's not going to help you become a better student. <laughs> no, there, you know? And so this was the complexity of life. At this highly esteemed right, university college that was under the microscope as being a leading arts factory, you know, in the country. Right? It was very intense. You know, you had to really have a thick you know, to power through. You know, especially if you were coming from backgrounds where, oh man, I didn't have books in my house. I didn't have any papers. You know, what's cool I, though is because of your background you felt comfortable confronting him in a very professional, respectful way, in my opinion. Like, I feel like not all, everyone who was 20 would have done what you did. A lot of people might have just given up or retreated, you know, and avoided that sort of risk of conflict. So do you feel like, yeah, your kind of background helped you be able to stand up for yourself in that way? How I ask, there, was, there is a toughness okay, where I think, and I'm proud, for sure. But I think... What carried me through in those days was how much I believed uh, in the the of creativity as a visual artist. Like it literally was my way of being just self awakening and and heightening uh, my consciousness. Right, learn. Right, like that's I was a visual learner. Right. You know, drawing the world around me, drawing nature, scientific in inquiry, you know, through diagrammatic drawings, analysis, you know, this is why I drew breathsoppers and snakes and all the natural world things, you know. And so I was so that practice, no one could shake. That was not going to happen, you know. Like, we could be even, you know, but you want to be. You know, that was my head. And so I just kept plugging away. You know, I knew my shortcomings, for God's sake. You know, like, you know what I mean? I had these ideas, but turned it into a cohesive, you know, paper. And sorry that you had to read it, you know. But don't think you're going to shake me out of the tree, you know. Right. And it, it seems like 
I remember when myself coming up, it's like you, some, some students are, um, they have such high respect for those professors in school that they don't want to even like, uh, approach them about that stuff. Or they feel like they need to wait for the professor to make the first move or to, uh, guide the path. But I went through, um, this alternative education after college, I went to this coding school where I learned how to code. And I remember one of the teachers said, you know, uh, we want you to be like so self-motivated that you're not going to let any of us get in the way. They say like, look at us as tools to help you, but we're not like the, the finish line. Like you need to push through and be like, whatever happens, like, uh, I'm going to move through this. I'm going to learn this stuff. And if the teacher's moving too slow, like you'll keep moving and pushing past them. Like, don't let us stop you or, uh, be too strong of an influence on your pace or what you think you need to be learning. Uh, we're more like, guides to point you on the right way, but we're not, we're not the end destination. And that was such a powerful, uh, breakthrough for me, but it seems like you kind of had a little bit of that already because you were so motivated by that desire yeah. to express yourself. I was so driven by the experience and results, you know, um, I could see through the human, uh, egocentric, you know, stuff, you know what I mean? Yeah. Stuff about arts, you know, like what you see matter what creation right you know so i was very quick with that i would you know cut through i would chat that you know and call my process and ultimately you know over my year in my first year i was so competitive so driven at the age of uh 20 19 and i'm going up against some of them are like 30 years old right in our first year there were 450 students from all across the country Right? Congregating in downtown Toronto, Oakland, okay? And at the end of it, college is very competitive because its reputation, its funding is based on the product and the students. Right? It's their calling card, okay? So they have a scholarship competition. So there's 200 and things, okay? There's no way I'm the user, right? I just don't roll that way. I'm going for it. I'm like, boom, boom, boom. You know, I, and we all put up our work throughout the college. First half is the top 35 from 450. Wow. That's a big cut. Big cut right. They had to get on with it because right? you can only, <laughs> you only have so many weeks, right? Because they got to get this all resolved. Right. So they look for pull and it's 35. So I made the cut. Top 35. Completely did a 180 on because all the others took their work because that's what happened. All they got said had to take the work on, and then only the, the last top 35 were left, right? And I'm walking through the halls and I'm looking at everybody's work now. Was genuinely hung to tears because there were people who, you know, I don't know how they were doing what they were doing. You know, they were older, they did this, they went to Brad, whatever. Just the fact that I was, I had this opinion, you know, that. That was a win. Yeah, that was a win. The experience was a win. To be classified at this point was was a major thing, you know? All of that competitiveness, speed dance. I was just happy to be. And now everything that I valued, you know, had done 180 and everything was about how do I learn more? 
let's forget about what I do well. What am I not doing that I need to dedicate myself? Which means I might not get a lot of flashy attention. And people might think I'm a bit off. But I'm focusing on my weak ones while I'm here learning, right? When I get out, there's no grace period, right? I ended up making the top 20. I didn't get a scholarship, but I got an honorable mention in the bottom three. So out of my first year of foreign I was basically the top recruit in the top 20. So all the departments wanted me in their department and so on and so forth. And I went into the commercial art department. But from that point on, I rejected all uh, result-oriented courses. Mm-hmm. You know, like an illustration course where you had to produce an illustration. I went into all studio and fundamental courses where I was doing 24 hours a week of drawing in multiple disciplines. Let's dwell on this for a second. I think this is so important because I think... Um, a lot of people struggle with it. I did too. It's like, it's that, it's that whole focus on grades or being measured and judged. And, um, when you can look past that and say, you know what, I'm just going to love the process, like focus on the system of like, just getting better at every day, like practicing your art, practicing whatever you're trying to learn, just like fall in love with the practice. Then the goals take care of themselves and they take care of themselves on the fastest schedule that's possible to you. If you obsess over the goals, you have no mental bandwidth to actually become improved to the point where you can achieve the goals. You know what I mean? Completely. Because what I was seeing was a contradiction right, to the crimson learn, right? And the result-oriented focus that garnished reputation for the institution. Yes. Prestige, status. Right. So, for example, you have kids in the storyboard who are being told, well, you know, professional storyboard, you know, you've got to draw super fast. You've got to do everything from no reference from your imagination, your memory, right? Because there isn't time for that. You've got to articulate the vision, you know, and so here's a commercial goal to do it. And then kids have come back with these storyboards that were like on this whole other level, you know, and I was at home trying to do it the way I was the, the discipline was supposed to be practiced, right? And it wasn't anywhere near that good. I wasn't bad, but I was at B level, right? And I found out that they were Lucy's and they were tracing. Uh, what are Lucy's? Lucy's are like a camera obscura where you put a magazine clipping in it and then it projects it with a lens onto a piece of paper. And so you can, you can trace it. it. Okay. You see what I mean? When I put that together, I said, wait, I'm not here for show. I'm here to be the real deal. So I got out of that route and I focused on building those disciplines. And my predecessor thought I had gone bonkers, you know, from being like in the top 20. Now my grades were all droppy. I wasn't involved in project-oriented things. It was all more work and training, you know, kind of thing. And they're just, you know, but I had a plan because I thought, while I'm here, I'm going to learn my drawing skills and painting skills as much as I possibly can. I won't even worry creating a portfolio while I'm in school. Because in the end, when you go and see your potential employer, they don't want to see what you're about. 
right now and argue a good fit to the problem that they have that they need to get rectified. Right. So I created my portfolio after I graduated. Right. Interesting. And, yeah. And people thought I was one of my products thought I was like gone, yeah. right? Like just lost and he wasn't good at it. But I showed up that September to one of my respected props, who was a top storyboard artist in the business, run my portfolio, which was completely targeted to getting a job as a rendering artist in an agency. Okay. Because that was the easy What's a rendering artist in an agency? Okay, so advertising agencies back in the would have an in-house concept illustrator that would render all of their conceptual pains um, and television commercials as part of the creative process of presentation to clients and resolving what they're doing before they go and spend a shitload of money on location and a production company and so on and so forth. Everything was hand-drawn. Even the headlines and everything, you know, the titles of the ads and stuff was all hand-drawn. People like me would do that. You'd sit down and I'd have to do a storyboard in a couple of hours, you know, for a, a bank commercial or a car commercial, you know, and then it would get presented to the client and to the production company and the director and, you know what I mean, all this kind of stuff. So they were called rendering artists because we would render up the ideas right, through hand draw. Okay. okay. And I would ask her this because I thought, man, if you can draw, you can draw an easy way to get into the right? You know, like, because it's such a special skill to have to be able to draw, like, a, like accurately, like a, a classical artist to do it super quick, like the comic book artist. Right. right. That's, that's the first guy uh, on a bank building on Bay Street on the 21st floor. It's like, it was wow. That's why I go to work every day. I had this office looking over Lake Ontario and I draw all day long. Did you have a blast? Oh, it was so much fun, man, back then. The parties, the, the events that would go on in the business, the energy, you know. Sometimes we'd work around the clock, but I loved every minute of it. You know? It, it, must, have been a, it must have been a big transition from, yeah, you're kind of like the environment you were in growing up to be in like a sort of a white collar type of job like that. I mean, that must have, were your parents proud of you? Cool. Cool. After I was there for a year, right, I, uh, I picked up my grandmother, my mother, and my aunts, and I drove them downtown to the Continental Bank. So this is bank building, 21st floor, right? And my studio was looking over Lake Ontario. And I bring them in, their jaws just right? Because you're talking like Carrera Marble, foyer, right? Board rooms high-tech, plush, carpet, furniture, this, like, just look pure in a skyscraper. 20, 21 stories up. Look we'll over this in the financial district of the country. They were fucking blown all the people. You work here, this, and, and you play with coloring pencils all day long, right? And then when I left, a year and a half later, oh my God, they were like doing prayers and rosaries and visiting the priests because they like, why would you do that? Why would you? They didn't understand that freelance, I could triple my, my revenue, you know, 
once I got a name in the business and getting hired to do rendering for all the other agencies, I made 10 times more money. You know, like from $15 an hour, my wage went up to like, you know, $60 an hour, you know? And it exponentially grew even faster over the years, you know? But uh, yeah, you believe it. Man. I showed, you know, because I did that on my own. You know, no one helped me. No one helped me understand who to call, you know, pound the pavement, do the interviews, cope with all that, you know, get my portfolio seen. You know? And then, forbid, once you got the gig, you had to walk in and deliver it. I was about to crap my pants the first gig I got. I had to do two renderings of a residential house for a, a bank billboard camp. In two hours, with no reference, but it was and it was one of those moments. Either I'm going to die on the spot, <laughs> my heart's going to blow up, or you're just going to plow on through and get this fucking done. Right. <laughs> and it got done. And it got done. And it got done. And it got done. It was interesting to me because the creative director offered me a job. Right. Oh, the right, the right. client. The client. The, the agency creative director that I was working for, right? Because it wasn't the bank. The bank was the client, right? You okay. Know, I'm third party because I'm servicing the agency. But he came up to me and he said, you know, would you be interested in a job? I said, absolutely. Because um, I thought that was the smartest thing, right? Because I was green, you know, like freelancing. You know, once you got in and you had a job, you could really see the industry from the inside out. And he told me years later, he said, you know why I hired you? And I said, no, I don't know. Why? Why did you have that was great. And he goes, well, you were good. But it wasn't that. And I said, well, what was it? And he goes, he goes, I knew how challenging the situation was that you were in. You know, and the thing was, you found a way to get it done. And I just knew you were the kind of person, and no matter what we dropped you in, you know, whatever situation you dropped you in, that you would find a way. Right? And now, isn't that interesting? You know, like it, it wasn't so much, you know, like the work had to be in a certain standard office, but it was that quality in a person. And no matter what, you were not going to be denied and you were going to get this stuff. Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that. Like, yeah, in a, in a professional setting, a lot of times, if you can make sure your yes is, is really a yes and that you know, there's predictability, like people can depend on you, that's more important than some sort of personal standard of, you know, excellence or something like that. I try to explain that to my oh, here. You know, you know that your your idea of professional, what the final outcome should be, not relevant. Right. The most important thing is you understand what's required and you get it done. Right. And if you practice that, the quality will exponentially catch up. Right. Through repetition, the quality will catch up. Right, but be focused on the objectives and the expectations that your client has and deliver. Be useful and deliver. And if you will do that, you will be valued to everybody that you work with. Because it, it is so, like if you get somebody who's dependable, you're like, I can trust this person. I can delegate to them. That is so, that's gold. And it's like most people, 
it depends on your field and what you're in and the company, all that. But a lot of times, if you're trying to hire people, you just run into people that are just not dependable. And it's just, it's just really hard to work with them, you know? So if you can- Yeah. (laughs) I mean, imagine hiring somebody to open up your shop, you know? And let's say they're cream or whatever. If they leave the place unlocked, if they don't open it up- Clean up. If they don't clean up, if they leave something switched on, you know? That, I need to trust you, right? And you think, you think, oh, well, like, I just- didn't lock the door. I left the light on. It's like one thing is how we do a lot of things. So the person who's hired you thinks, oh, if they left the lights on, like what other thing are they going to not do right well, down the road? You know, I have a conversation like with my kids because empathy is a very big thing, right? Catering to the anxiety, the insecurities, and the ADD, but a little goes on forever, right? <laughs> right. Now, I understand that. Right. Empathy and human compassion is important. And I think it's important for props to really dig in and help kids understand what they're doing to themselves. But one of the things I always remind students, is, you know, say, well, you know, this happened, then, you know, I couldn't get it done or I couldn't show up or, you know, my markers ran out. And, you know, and I said, look, all this is cool. I said, but put it in this context. If you were playing for, you know, the Super Bowl, and the game is set for this at this time. And you get sick. Genuinely sick. You know? You don't show up to the game. And you can't play. Right? They don't reschedule the game. You've lost. It does not mean you're failing. Circumstances conspired against you. Understood. But the bottom line is, you didn't participate. So you didn't cross the finish line. So you couldn't win. Right? And and that's just a reality. Now you have to deal with that and pick yourself up and build from there. But you don't get a redo. Life doesn't work that. So yeah. keep that in mind, right? Yeah, it's interesting. It's uh, I think the 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 new emphasis in the younger generation on understanding your emotions and having more visibility into that, I think is good. But it, it yeah, we're it falls over is when you associate or identify too much with your emotions. So you think, because I feel this way, therefore, like, I cannot do this or I couldn't get it done. But it, like the definition of a professional, somebody who, hey, I've got a cold or I've, I've got my kids are sick or whatever it is, like they just um, handle their stuff internally, they handle it and they still deliver um, or they at least communicate, hey, like this went sideways, I need an extra day. Whatever it is, like that's that's that thing, and I think um, we don't want to discard that. Um, we, we you can still, I think, um, uh, have this greater appreciation, understanding of emotions, and help people better deal with their emotions and work through that. I think that's healthy, but still also not discard that professional element, which I think is what you're trying to convey to your students. It's very critical, very critical. Yeah. So so you got into commercial art after OCAD, and. Correct me if I'm wrong, but you had a pretty long career doing that, right? Yeah. I mean, I've been doing that till this day, you know, it's 40 years, right? I started there because, you know, again, coming from that working class background, the the prevailing ideology at the time was you were going to be a fine artist. You did not go and work in an advertising. Okay. Okay. That was true. That was negative. 
it, it would it would it would hinder your ability to be successful later. That's right. Okay. As a matter of fact, that that it would instill in you the disciplines and approaches that would be detrimental to your pursuit of genuine art. Now, that's all well and good. You know, it, what, it's kind of how like uh like I sometimes today people talk about fine art and then like they say, oh, that's not really fine art, that's decorative art. You ever heard people exactly. say that? <laughs> of course oh that's commercial art that's ad art but it's not that's not fine art yeah and, and look that's in the work you can see it in the work right like you know there's a lot of artists that they just do decorative stuff and they sell because people you know and it's very easy for Sean. and there's but it's kind of a put down it's a put down like uh in the in my world of like business you have venture-backed businesses like like those are called startups and then the VCs who are like the, the money people, gatekeepers. And I have no problem with the VCs. It's just interesting. They they will call non-venture-backed businesses lifestyle businesses. And there's a tiny bit of connotation of like, oh, that's like a less lesser than thing. And it's just a framing choice, you know. But um, And it became very quick, I'll put that. And art institutions that were pursuing for the ultimate, you know, like artistic these were put down. It was also a put down, for example, if you want to be an artist and you were a professional illustrator, illustration on art, you know, and even though you could draw like a damn Da Vinci, you know what I mean? Doing, you know, anatomy for Time magazine or, you know, Forbes magazine, you know, and stuff like that, you know, uh, you want a real artist. It's such a, it's such a, yeah, just because that idea is out there doesn't mean that you have to agree with it or buy into it, you know? Well, that was like, and here's how I process, right? I said, I watched all my friends who graduated before who are going to be painters and they were going to go work, you know, doing some non-demanding job, you know, serve, you know, serve tables, you know what I mean? Or burgers, whatever. And then at night, uninterfered by anyone else that you were at. at some other time, they were going to make And what I saw, they were just practicing their discipline. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, it's not computing. Then I go and see a friend of mine who was younger, brilliant draftsman, like unbelievable. Chris Robot, that's how good he was. I never forgot his. He got a scholarship to work for Doyle, Dane, and Birnbaum in third year uh, OCAP, right? Mm -hmm. So, wow, you know, this kid who was like, you know, drawing like an unbelievable comic book artist, you know, precise anatomically correct figures gets doubted by this agency. Hey, I go and visit him, a young and blur, right? On the 21st floor of the Xerox building, you know, and I go there and what is he doing? Got all beautiful brand new cans of paper, markers, hairbrushes. And he's drawing all day long and getting a good point, right? Now, an agency was supposed to be the battles of hell, where you were going to be corrupted the most in regards to being an artist, right? And all I saw was a guy who was getting paid to draw all day. How can that be bad? I come from a background where if you plant a seed in the garden, and a tomato grows. And from that tomato, you make sauce that you can use all winter long. You rigatoni in your spring pastas, right? 
you feel parmesan, right? Affirming, life affirming. They said, I don't want to completely understand it, but there's something wrong with this. And I like this opportunity. And I want that opportunity for me to pay, to draw all day long so I can become better. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's, it's, it's so, it's like a, it's self-sabotage where like, I am going to decline opportunities that give me opportunity to practice because it will compromise the purity of my pursuit or something like that. It's, it, there's, a, there's obviously some sort of rationale to it. Otherwise people wouldn't do it. But it's a very self-sabotaging style of thinking, in my opinion. Think the unpopularist dogma. You know, this is what happens. Like, if you think of the percentage of performers, entertainers, creatives, we're a very small percentage of the population. The majority of the population settles for some kind of arrangement where they can afford themselves standard of living, right? And don't get to pursue deepest desires or motivations, right? So we're a very, very small percentage. Most popularistic dogma is created by the non-creatives who want to romanticize, right, and categorize the state of being of their celebrities. See what I, I mean? see what you mean. So it's the so non-creatives create these unhelpful narratives about creatives. The yeah, starving like, artist. Example, yeah, if you're a real artist, you know, you don't care about money. Well, where'd you get that from? Right? The majority of history in Western culture, artists have been money-making professional. They had patrons or they had, you Absolutely. know. Yeah. They had workshops. Yeah. If you go back into the Renaissance, all the artists who they stole claim to be such bigger. Michelangelo just big goddamn comic book of the Bible on a stick. That's all he did. Yeah, there are different panels. <laughs> different panels. Very simplistically colored. Like his comic book. You know, uh, Cellini was a mensman. And he took metals, melted them, create molds, and then respelled gold. This is the way they used to wander one with papers, right? Uh-huh. Steal from somebody else, get somebody like Cellini to melt it all down, and then reform it into new sculptures. So it looked like it was there stuck in the first all, place. All the time. All the time, right? <laughs> so, you know, these were services that these creative people, you know, one thing that people forget, so terrible, right? Because they don't, again, it's a romantic idea of the artist struggling to realize vision. But the reality of it is, all of the civilized world, everything that's been built, created, or manufactured by men, at one point or another, had to pass through the hands of the artist. What do you mean by that? Well, you do not make a car without it passing through the hands of an artist. I see what you mean. There's the concept that was created on first starts with creating sketches of forks. And then they developed the sketches into, you know, three-dimensional rendered illusions that then get built in clay models, sculpture, you know? Every, Every basically product or service or thing that humans create that we interact with goes through some sort of some sort of design phase whether that person identifies as an artist or not there's exactly. art present in that yeah think about our money you know think about the great artists that chisel out those engravings to create the plates to print the money and so on and so forth right the architects right the urban plan everything that is man-made has to go through some design process 
Well, that's the artist is indispensable. The artist who solely focuses on their own agenda. That is a phenomena of the 20th century. Right? That's where all of that modernism came to be. Was once you have a printing press and a camera, the artist who was originally used basically to render the world right. in as a realistic and accurate a manner, you know, to scale and proper perspective and all the things that you need to build it was questioned in terms of their relevancy and value in that world. So thus the the impetus for the modernist movement where artists turn to themselves inward to see, is there an innate value? In the creative process, practice through the individual, right? Or they, they went to rendering things that were more abstract, that not as representational, but still is maybe a reflection of the human condition or something that. So, Harry, if you do your historical research, you will find that at the same time as abstraction was starting to take uh, place in Western culture, similar ideas of subatomic particles were being written about in the scientific. Right, right, right. So when you look at the impressionist paintings of the early French painters, they were painting your first digital monitors. Mm, it's it, like, you know, the pointillism. I never thought about that, but the pointillism is like, uh, yeah, like a, an it's LCD it's, screen with all the pixels and stuff. Yeah, yeah. And Stratt and Snap actually took that partitive mixture process try to turn it into a scientific system, right? So it was literally very precise dots. Right. They were in unconsciously rendering the first TV screens and digital models. It, it makes me think about, like, I wonder how much interplay there was of, like, yeah, just people that being in the air, like, I mean, technologists having seen that art and thinking, like, what if we took these tiny little lights and we had them put little colors on the screen, you know, exactly. you know. that's exactly unconscious. You know, Carl, Carl Jung's collective consciousness. This is exactly what this is about. Like, do you remember the sciences and the arts converged in the Renaissance? Right. Right. But what ended up happening as the scientific exploration presented bigger and broader questions, that they were unable to answer with any reasonable logic or formal process. Then the Romantic period happened and the arts and the sciences diverged because a certain type of experiential irrationality needed to be embraced to be able to break the mold of the system that had been in place for for almost a millennium, right? So they diverged and they didn't understand each other, right? But the only way that the artists break the dogma and really just go out there, you know, and then start to think of surrealism, you know, and um, non-related symbols, you know, being put into natural, or reducing everything down to just shapes and colors and frequencies and all this kind of stuff. They had to impose a certain irrationality, give them the impetus to dare to jump off of the, the ledge. 
the abyss of unknown, right? Science didn't have the answers, right? And you feel the urgency and the need because of the development of industry and machinery and so on and change that was happening. So the artists went off the edge. Hmm. And a lot of the times, you can read a paper that, let's say, Kandinsky wrote about non-objective it's all fucking hogwash. You know, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. But what he's talking about gave him enough motivation and impetus there to experiment. And then the result led in these understandings. You know, the fact that the Impressionists turned around and said, the whole idea of light and the way the Renaissance would taught us is all real. You know, because Renaissance painting is all basically brown with black color, and it's based on solid volume illusion, not some molecular structures that are transparent and ephemeral and so on and so forth. And then doesn't really deal with true light, which is the spectrum of the rainbow color, pure color, white light, yellow, purple, magenta. It was the impressionists that forget about. Let's just walk out into nature, right, and react to what we see. And all of a sudden, started to lay down the framework of color theory, scientific color theory based on action wavelengths of light. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know enough about it to articulate this well, but I, I, I see what you mean by the art and science diverging at different points in history. But I, I think at the same time, there's there's some way that, like you just said, like there's a lot of science to art. It's almost like there, there are certain shifts that happen in the culture where new technology comes about, and then that causes people that want to create culture to have to react to that, and then um, uh, move into spaces where, like the the with the 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 camera, like the camera can create realistic photos. So you so they move into impressionism or something like that. That's a little bit more uh, uh, not so realistic. And then they, because they've been forced to do that, they discovered like new scientific insights, like you just said. So there's this interesting interplay that I, I don't think we have time to kind of get into, but um, I, I think that's definitely worth exploring more. So you mentioned you're, you're a professor, you have students. When did you become a professor? Uh, so I started teaching as soon as I graduated from Old Yeah. I got involved in artists, artists in the schools program the ontario uh, government and the municipal government in toronto surgery so fame schools right? you know just like you know we're uh, performing arts theater artists and so on and so i'm going and do workshops right, at these schools that were dedicated to art focused kids right? what sort uh, of workshops yeah so i did that for a number of years you know through the 80s Okay, and then I would intermittently take on uh, private students that were aspiring to go to university, and then I knew, which was common practice in the art institutions, based on your professional career, if you had enough of a successful career, eventually the the possibility of teaching at a university or at a college was was uh, in the cards. And so, in two thousand and three, I got contacted by the chair of the school inside at George Brown and asked me if I would consider joining them to help develop curriculum, revamp the design program, right? And 
at George Brown College here in Toronto. And uh, yeah, I don't get the, uh, the opportunity because I love to teach it, to share the experience with, uh, with kids. So, so officially I became a prof in 2003. Where do you feel like your love of, of teaching and helping people and mentoring them comes from? I think it comes from this whole thing. Very important, very important to me. I told you about my background and how I worked in isolation. I didn't have anybody I could share in. You know, my mother would throw my drawing. You know, in the house, we have a look and they were gone, right? She kept nothing, you know? And so what I found myself gravity was relationships with kids who were married, very masterful at, at drawing and painting. And I don't know what it was. It, you know, it's like you could play basketball with a friend. You could talk with a friend. You can listen to music with a friend. For me, it was like sitting and drawing in a communal situation was so enriching and informing that I loved, I relished that sharing experience. You know, I had a, there was a little girl, she in grade three, her name was, and she lived on a farm, you know, just north of my elementary school. You know, the farm wasn't that far away. And she had horses. Harry, this girl could draw a horse better than Jericho, you know, or like, any Renaissance artists, right? She had an intimate relationship with horses. Her horses, they cared for her. And I sat beside her and watched her draw a horse. We wouldn't exchange work. She could watch her draw a horse. And I would copy her. I would mimic her. I would look at the proportions. I would look at the fit. And I would draw, I would try to draw horses. Right? And that exchange, with everything. Even more important than the art itself and the accolades towards the arts. And I think at the very root of that exchange is where my passion for teaching is. Because I love being there with anyone. A five-year-old, a six-year-old, or a 20-year-old. They're laying down, I'm laying down, and we're looking at what's happening, and we're trying to understand where it's going and where it's going right and where it's going wrong and what we could do. Just this open, what do they call it when you write um, code? Uh, they, they, they call it... Uh, Pair programming? Well, when it's an open source, right? Open source, yeah, yeah. Right? And, and you're handing that, and I think that was very hard. This craft, this vocation that I was engaging myself in, a big part of it was sharing the, knowledge, the acquired knowledge and experience. And it seems like it's, but more than just sharing, it was like um, a socialization outlet, like a way to be in relation to people that you care about. Man. I found out more about a person by looking at what they drew, what they cared about, how they approached the drawing or the painting. You know, how they analyzed it, how they broke it down. You know, like, it's a non-verbal language. You know, it's a visual language. You know, what gets me really angry about our world is so much weight is put on words, math, and code, and all that nonsense. Okay. And I get it in school, but one 
if people forget, I'm going to remind them. Visual technology and language predates written language. Language exists because somebody drew visual images. And those visual images from the natural world were pared down to the symbolic and hieroglyphic world. And then all of a sudden, letter forms came out of that and it formed the language. So I really resent the fact that people just pass over, you know, the art experience, like it's some sort of, you know, entertainment break, you know what I mean? Or craft time, fun time, you know what I mean? And they don't recognize that the very existence, your code language that you know, your math and your written language, all it's my pictures. And that is important. Yeah, it's an interesting insight. Uh, it's it, it makes sense. I mean, like, yeah, uh, you look at hieroglyphs in Egypt, early languages were these glyphs and symbols that eventually corresponded to abstract ideas. And then we could talk to each other. <laughs> and that still kind of communication for me was on such a deep level. When I found a friend that had that, you know, I had this friend, Boris, right? I'm not in way. Nobody ever picked him for the baseball team. So you know what I mean? And I was always very attractive. I was a quarterback in my high school. You know, so I had all that. But I was always attracted to these outside you know, and Boris, his father was a mechanic, mechanical engineer, and they used to build models, scale models, and ships, World War II air, you know, things I never had the opportunity because remember, we've done a mortgage, there are no Christmas presents, you ain't getting any models, you ain't get right, you go visit his house, you see all these models that he built this down, right? When he would sit down and do a drawing, he would take pencils and he would sharpen them to about this, okay? 30 of them, reach your needles, bullets, right? And he'd have this piece of paper and like a, like a printer, he'd start with one and he'd ravage. The next thing you know, you were looking at this, you know, side elevation of a World War II aircraft carrier Perfect. Wow. Every parrot, every gun, every land, every plane. And I used to try to draw these aircraft carriers for us. You know? So that dialogue, exchange, and unspoken. Every line, every mark, every value, you know, uh, that he was putting down on the paper, right? I mean, he was passing his knowledge on and it was implicit in a sense because you may not know like what different parts of the aircraft carrier do or don't do but you're still learning something in that process here's the thing that people miss with the visual arts right even though it's two-dimensional the visual the visual arts fundamentally are um, a type of uh, construction okay you don't need to know what a part does. You just need to understand its geometrical form. It's a different way of thinking. But this is why I could study a cadaver, right? And look at the arteries and the veins and how it connects 
you know, to an internal word, brainstem, and so on and so forth, and drop absolutely perfectly. And I don't know what it is or what it does, but I understand its structural geometry. Sphere, the columns, you know, the cylinder, right? the mathematics form. Which is very much what my work is based on now. It's like the X, Y, and Z axis. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that for a second. I know when you and I last worked together, we were talking a lot about mythology and helping people celebrate myth in their life. Like, is that yeah. something that's still important to you or what, what are you working on these days? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it is, right? Uh, but that's on the surface, right? That's how I take the idea of structural geometry and I utilize it to render the alternative world according to this, right? And, and so what is in that world? Well, all the things I love, the things that profoundly affected, you know, gladiators, Hercules, Greek mythology, hockey goalies, you know, sexy women, you know, uh, female goddesses, machines, hot rods, engines, mechanical things, right? So those become the hieroglyphs and the icons the library of content I draw on, every time I go to do a painting, it's all based on the XYZ grid systems, which build out the geometry, which is the universe. Well, the forms, you know, because form is a form, right? It's like a sphere and you take a, a cube and you take a cylinder and you mash them together in a different way and you got a 427 Hemi engine. Or, to have a really hot woman. Either or, you're building a universe right, through the act of drawing. So that's, you know, on the formal sense, it's about the level of abstraction, matrix, right? I just do over and over and over again. But on the bigger, more public, inclusive, it speaks to all cultural, social, spiritual symbols and images we experience. I'm a Batman nut. Batman A is like Achilles, you know, to the Greek mythology. The hero I relate to as a pseudo hero. He's had tragedy in his life. He lost his parents. He's vulnerable and he perseveres. Does he have an Achilles heel? Oh, I think he does. He has a few. You know, one can definitely work. The other, he is Cromwell. Is shy. It's him in life, right? And that's a bit of a vulnerability. You know, there's a tragedy about that. You know, and I've always related to that because I kind of feel there's a tragedy about me, you know, being born, you know, to Italian immigrants coming to this country. When I went to school, I was a lot. When I went, came home, I was a monkey, you know. So I didn't belong to anybody, you know, podcast, you know, misfit, you know, the island of misfit toys. Right? So, you know, and that, and that's the thing with that thing, but that's what I love hitting for that. You know, you determine these, you know, I mean, unforgiving, you know, he just keeps going. He just, yeah. he just hours on through. You know, you mentioned gladiators as well. Did you know um, 
the two of those, the big tech guys, uh, Elon Musk and Mark Zuckerberg, uh, they are talking about having a fight between each other. Did you know this? Like a fiscal fight? I've heard of it. And recently they talked with the Coliseum in Rome and the Coliseum says that they can fight in the Coliseum if they want to. <laughs> Isn't that something? <laughs> like, how do you feel about it? How do you feel? I'll tell you what I feel about it after. But you tell me how you feel about it. I think, um, uh, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I think it's, I think it's kind of fun. I think that the, the business world and the technology world can be so serious and so intense and so stuffy that this is kind of a way of just, um, like cutting through that and having some fun. Cause it's going to be like, you know, like a, it's not going to be a street brawl where there's no rules they'll have some sort of rules if they do it and i think it's a spectacle and i think it um i i yeah i'm a fan of like what i talked about earlier biographies you know what they call it great man theory of history or great person here theory of history whatever you want to call it like so i like the idea that we have big larger than life people that you know are on the stage and uh people kind of mythologize them a bit so that's kind of why i brought it up i thought you might have an interesting insight on it so I'm a little bit torn because I agree completely with you. The idea of having some fun, you know, to be playful. And, and what this seems to me is a little bit is, is catering to the lowest common denominator, you know, okay. a little bit too base for me because these guys are important to you, you know, and they have the world in our hands. They influence the world in a big way, given their positions, and, uh, their place, you know. To me, you know, one of the things that I really loved, and I, I talked about this one time when I was lecturing at a business conference and speaking to an engineering company that was having problems recruiting people. And, you know, I said, why not you create a TV show where if you just fucking blow things up, you know, or smash things up against the wall, you know, this kind of stuff. As engineers. And engineers. And then you remember when the MIT did those uh, robot wars? Yeah, they had that. There was uh, Mythbusters. It was a huge show for a while. Mythbusters, right? To me, I would like to see those two fellas get a little bit more in this in sustainable programs that were fun, silly, but had this ending focus. That would give greater opportunity to new talent, you know, people in underprivileged situations. It might be brilliant. You know, they have a mother that comes in and says, we got a mortgage, so you don't get to go to fucking college, you know? Right, right. And, and have fun and exploratory play in that kind of a productive way, rather than something that's a bit vain, egocentric like this, you know? That's that's my feeling because I'm all for the fun, but I think it could be better served than this silly nonsense. It's interesting. It's um, yeah, I see what you mean. It's what I've grown to learn is that like yeah, that's sort of like vain exercise or sort of like publicity or like what's the point of this? Is there is there a point to it? I when I was coming up, I had less of understanding of that. But the thing is, if you are a master at getting attention, and you can focus that well then they can then take that attention 
and then channel it towards those causes or issues that you just spoke about, right? And if you work directly towards those goals, sometimes you reduce the impact. So um, I don't know. I'm not, I don't know these characters that well. I'm not here to, you know, defend them or be their PR, but I bet they probably do a lot of things like that. Um, they're maybe not, don't get as much press because they're not as clickbaity or entertaining. And the reason that they have the funds, the resources to support those causes and have that positive impact, it's, it's because uh, they're open to like these forms of like un, uh, unconventional attention getting, um, you know, that maybe you or I don't want that level of spotlight or we think is vain, you know. Well, no, but your argument is very well taken because, you know, remember what we talked about, how the majority of the population usually their ads on some sort of Chris Dogma, you know, that's very interesting to them, you know what I mean? You know, like the artist who cuts off his ear, you know what I mean? Or, you know, like, you know, Jackson Pollock urinating and Peggy Guggenheim's fire, fireplace in your New York apartment, you know, during a party, right? And there is significance in that because it does get attention and then brings um, attention to a more greater and more relevant issue, you know, but it's a check and balance, right? You know, <laughs> I love his postures. I thought they were amazing. I watched the thing called Junkyard Wars, where they pit, you know, like motorcycle gang guys against British naval engineers, you know, yeah. to build machines and outperform each other, you know, and the, the robot battles, you know, the MIT used to do in the cages. I loved that. I thought that was great entertainment. You know, these two mechanical machines destroying genus, which can then incapacitate other, you know. But there is a point when things get, you know, like ancient Rome, baby. Well, yeah, like that's when someone bring the donkey in the have to go what to the slave or whatever. It's just to see what happens. Like what the hell? Let's just see what happens, right? I don't know. I forgot there, but I mean, yeah, there've been times in history where you'd have two different you know, factions and you'd have, they'd, they'd bring forth their champions and then they would have this sort of pitch combat between two people and whoever won, you know, would, it would save all this bloodshed, right? They would win some larger conflict. And, um, if they do go with through with the fight, it would be interesting to see if, you know, subconsciously society reflects that in their behavior. Like if Elon wins, people use Twitter more, or if Mark wins, like their new Twitter clone has more success. So I just think or it's it's I want to like have to wear Mark's running shoes or something. Yeah, yeah. I just think the the novelty of it's fascinating, and um, uh, in a, in a way, you know, some business is like a stylized form of violence, and so I don't know. Um, I'm curious about it, and there's um. Don't you think it's some form of stylized violence? I would even go as far as contemporary business finance is literally war in war. It sometimes is, but like there, there are, there are, uh, yeah, like there are these zero sum dynamics where it's like you win, I lose. But then there are other dynamics in business where it's no, if, if I can convey this to you the right way, then we both win. Right. And that, that's what I try to teach some of my people is like in sales, if, if you give me money and then your life is better for it, then actually that's a, that's not zero sum. That's a positive sum dynamic. If your collector buys your art, their life is now more enriched than if they, kept on kept hold of the a thousand dollars or five thousand dollars or whatever um they had that you exchanged for that so um but that's a very that's a very healthy perspective Eric. that's one of the things that i enjoy 
so working with you, listening to you, because you come at it from the point of view that we all have needs and require things we can provide for ourselves. So I can do this and you can do that. And sometimes I pay, sometimes I get paid, right? Yep. And it is a sh- an exchange and a service we provide each other create a healthy coexistence. At its best, it's always one plus one equals three. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, but it's not always like that, you know? And um, at some levels of the game, especially the media likes to portray it as like, this is your some, you know, fight or dynamic. But um, um, there's something I was going to say, there's this idea that like, I think Elon's, one of his philosophies is that the most entertaining outcome is the most likely. Have you ever heard that idea? specific he, he he plays to the idea that we might even live in a simulation right like we live in some sort of computer world and uh, he thinks it's not, i don't know if he necessarily tries to will this into existence or if he just thinks naturally you know you look at some sort of contest you look at some moment in history that's coming up we don't know what's going to happen if you assume the most entertaining thing's going to happen then that's likely going to be the case because for some reason i guess all of us collectively want to be entertained we like story so much that we We'll move our actions. We'll vote in a way. We'll spend our money in a way where, like, we want entertaining outcomes in our life. Um, so if they were, if they were to fight, it would be very entertaining. <laughs> life is experiential. That journey and that experience, right? You know, if you go back to the whole thing about the unstarving program, I mean, one of the things we talked about, you know, understanding. The client's problem and making yeah. it about them. You know, I'm not very good at, but I'm working. You know, and I'm studying. You made progress life. even in the time we did it. I mean, huge progress. Yeah. So I'm working on it. I've been looking at like the psychology and it. Why don't people buy? And why people buy? You know, I'm saying. So you know, when you when you 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 look at that situation, right? It's the experiential dance that you're engaged with with the client. I have found like when it works, when it culminates in the same, it's almost orgasmic. It's amazing. <laughs> right? Because it's like you're dancing this person and you're giggling and you're laughing and you're experiencing such joy and it just hits this apex and it just becomes It flows. Yeah. That they just have to like press the button or give you the money. You know what I mean? You know, they kind of thing, you know what I mean? And they needed that. Right? It is a form of release. It, there's, there's a visceral element to it for sure. Very yeah. visceral. And, and if that goes off, I've seen it happen too in my own experience where all of a sudden I said the wrong thing or turned in the wrong way. And then all of a sudden that bust implodes. They're a jilted lover. <laughs> They're a jilted lover, right? When you think of our state of being, we're born into this world with certain sensory tools. And from the get-go, we're basically living an experience. And you're trying to make the experiences as gratifying and productive as possible. You know, sometimes you step into dog do you know, whatever. But, it's, you know, but we're all in that pursuit. So right. your luck is not off the mark. Right. Right. It's a very insightful idea. And I think just to kind of try to bring it home, it's like 
for the artists listening and for you and for all of us, it's like, yeah, like if we can, people want to be entertained. Like if you, if, when people meet you and they interact with you, it's not like you have to be a clown and perform, but if you can be interesting, engaging, uh, help them be entertained, help them find meaning or narrative in like the interaction with you, you'll be better served by that than just being cold or like inwardly focused or something. But here's the, now that what you just mentioned, very, very complex situation cuts. It is that gratifying experience. It's fascinating when you actually subjective study of individuals. Okay. Fascinating to see how certain people have used certain methodologies to achieve that. Take Robert De Niro. Okay. So pain in the ass. He stares at you like he'd sooner kick the shit out of you rather than give you a word. Right? And then when he does give you a word, it's intelligent and thoughtful. Oh my God. It's just very hurt and short. Short. Yeah. It's like trying to get water out of a stone. Miles Davis used to perform with his back turned to his audience. That's how little regard he had for the people that were paying out their bucks to go and see him. So certain individuals can create the experience you are craving or desire, right? Many different ways, right? You'll have others who are constantly pleasing and, you know, this and that. Like, look at somebody like Dolly Parton or whatever that it's kind of like, here, here are my assets, you know, and putting it out there and smiling and what that. <laughs> everyone... This is very important. Everyone needs to find what fits. Sure. Where are you at your office? Sure. You know, like you, you remember when you said to me, when we were doing my Instagram pages, hey Vince, you know, the photograph, you look too, too intense there, too blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm seeking something a little bit more friendly. And I did that. But you know what? I changed the path. No, because I am that. Right. If you talk to some of my students, my whole persona, the experience that they want from me is this gnarly gunslinger who's staring at you like this fast work hard, push through, you know, you could do it, you know, that steely, harsh, you know, and in a way, feels comfortable to me. Right? Now, how do I manifest that into caring about your needs and your problem and what you're growing an audience. That's right. That's my responsibility as a business to find it, to figure out how to do that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, within my habits. Yeah. 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 No, I hear you. That, that is interesting. Celebrities are really interesting to look at. Wait, you know, look at, look at the camel reefs, you know, there's very little. But everybody thinks he's a saint walking amongst us, right? Because he'll thought and have a, bring a coffee to a homeless person and have a chat with them. You know? The, 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 the tough thing, the deceptive thing about celebrities and looking at them as possible models of inspiration or emulation is that, you know, they became celebrities because they had multi-million dollar uh, marketing budgets behind these films that they're in. And so you become aware of them in spite of their personality. So a Robert De Niro might be very gruff individually, 
but because he's been in so many great films, he's such a good actor. He can, he can move, he can have success in spite of that unapproachability. Um, so I don't know they, there, there's definitely some margins of safety. You don't have to be, you know, the most gregarious Dolly Parton-esque, you know, version of, of Vince Mancuso, but, um, can't do it, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, often I think about that, you know, when I'm trying to good and struggle through yeah. and, yeah. and you know but, what? So I, I can't do that. But there is a but, version of Vince, Vince that is you, that, that is your personality, that is as um, open or receptive or asks good questions or connects with as many people as possible within that sort of guardrails, if that makes well, sense. You take one of your principles... And, you know, this bound your client and lift to them. Helps them close the problem that they have. Yeah. Right? Just by taking that position, you can be whoever you are. Your agenda to literally listen and say, what is it that I can provide you? What is it the experience that you need from me? You know, because I am ready to give it to you, you know, if we can clarify that, you know, right. if you put that forefront in your goal, right, then you could be anybody and be successful. Yes. That's where you teach, you know. Actually. True. Yep. True. Yep. So I feel like that's as good a note of it as any for us to maybe wrap things up. I mean, um, I'd love to talk to you more. Let's definitely talk again. If people want to, Learn more about you. Where can they find more about you online? So you go now. I created this new website, which is strictly dedicated to. Okay. My focus these days has been. I'm doing less of the commercial work. I am selling a lot more work. Good for I, you. Like, yeah, I've been selling a lot of drawings and selling the paintings and it's building. You know. Where are you selling that through? A lot of it is going through Facebook. Cool. So you are, you're still doing it yourself, but you're just using Facebook more than Instagram right now. That's where I get the most traction and dialogue. Great. I, I, I try to tell folks, I mean, yeah, we focus on Instagram in the training, but it's like all these tech platforms are the, the mechanics, the fundamentals are the same. And so if you find out that, yeah, for some reason you're just connecting better on Facebook or LinkedIn, some, I have some artists that do LinkedIn. It's the same thing, man. It's just like the, depth, you're just changing the colors on the, or the, you know, the platform looks a little bit different, but. They talk, they talk to me more there. You know what I mean? You know, kind of. So, you know, so I created this website called VinceMancuso.art. Okay. Okay. And there you'll see my paintings, my drawings, my sketchbooks, and my life in art. You know, uh, you know, that's my teaching career, concepts, fine artists, awards, my this, that. And that's where people can see, you know, really what's at the epicenter of my daily this awesome well vince thanks so much man it was really fun to catch up with you and learn more about your story so i really appreciate it no i appreciate it and i love uh, talking to you brother all this all right well let's talk soon okay all right bye everybody ciao